Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Spartan Speak, a podcast from the Lansing State Journal and Detroit Free Press focused on Michigan State sports. I'm Phil Friend, your host, producer, and sports writer for LSJ, joined by, as always, Lansing State Journal sports columnist Grant Couch and Detroit Free Press beat writer Chris Solari. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, you know, just kind of getting through the the uh, long month of November when you have the overlap. Uh it definitely is a grind month. There's no question about that. So kind of trying to come out of that and 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 enjoy a December that's going to be busier than normal, it seems like. Graham, how about you? You know, it, it's weird because November is one of those months that um, is, is a lot. and and But I always really enjoy it. It's one of my favorite months uh, in, in the job. But I would never want to do it twice in a row. You know, it's like oh, yeah. everything collides and everything's exciting, and and then it's and then you're you're always a little glad it's it, it's done. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that this month you will get like almost a full week off from uh, I think I think it's over a full week. Off. I think it's like eight or nine days away from Michigan State basketball with the finals week and everything. But then uh, we come right back with two Big Ten games uh, before <laughs> before the end of the year. Not to mention a, a couple of non conference games sprinkled in. So. Not to mention potentially a trip to New York for the Heisman. Yeah, got that. And then, of course, a uh, to-be-determined Michigan State football bowl game. We don't know when that's going to be. That will be determined depending on how, how Michigan does this week. And we'll, we'll learn that on Sunday. Yeah, and other factors. So, yeah. Like, yeah, we'll learn that on Sunday after all the conference championship games are done. Yeah. Well, Chris, you uh, talked about a, a very muddled November with a lot of football and basketball. And those are the two things, of course, we are going to talk about this week. But we are going to start in the football realm where – on a Saturday or last Saturday, I should say, Michigan State concluded its regular season with a thirty to twenty-seven victory over Penn State in beautiful, beautiful Michigan weather. If if uh, three inches of snow is your thing, but uh, that gave the Spartans a ten-win season and a chance to make a New Year Six bowl game. Which, considering this team went two and five a year ago, I mean, all those storylines have been talked about and played out, you know, in media and on this podcast. But uh, to go ten and two in Mel Tucker's second season is uh, is quite the accomplishment, Chris. I just want to point out what I said last week that Penn State still has James Franklin as head coach. <laughs> first and foremost, I think that's that's an important thing for next for ten more years and a lot of money. He did not get as much as Mel Tucker. Not as much as Mel Tucker that we know of, but that you know that it was a big win, and I think Graham brought it up uh, by calling it a program win. Um, you know, kind of harkening back to those hats from a few years ago. But this really was for a number of reasons. I think the fact that you know Thanksgiving weekend draws are really tough for Michigan State and have been, uh, you know, in the twenty-five years I've been around, and that was a pretty darn good crowd. Um, and you know, whatever the enticements were to get the students to bring friends or, or whatever it was for the ticket prices for people, they had bodies in the seats that made it a, a pretty hostile environment, which I think 
that needs to be credited first and foremost. And then, you know, the, the team, I thought, responded to that. And they responded to the ability to win 10 games and all of the challenges that laid in front of them. Um, you know, they they made an impression, I think, on the, the college football playoff selection committee, which is important because, you know, if you want to get one of those New Year's Six Bowls, the CFP uh, selection committee is the one that basically puts you in them. They're the ones that select them and they then point to the destination. So, you know, barring any catastrophic chaos that, that could come on Saturday, you know, it sure seems like either the Fiesta Bowl or the Peach Bowl are, are a very likely destination. Um, you know, it, it's if if all that chaos plays out, I think is where it it could get a little dicey, Graham. It looks right now as long as the favorites win out, you know that that they're in. Um, you know, we say that having seen what happened in 2014 with the Mississippi State, Michigan State flip on um, on the day of the bowl selection, with neither team having played the previous Saturday. So there is precedent for <laughs> for like the last second unexpected movement. Uh, and that year is famously for me the year that I booked um, a bunch of us on trips to the Orange Bowl, only to have the Cotton Bowl be uh, a non-refundable tickets that we then had vouchers for for the next year with American Airlines. Uh, it was one of my great travel gaffes. Um, but like at that, that moment, traveled American was the first gaff. Well, that that might have been it. But I remember sitting there, and everybody else is like thinking about the storylines that just happened with the change to the Cotton Bowl from the orange bowl. And all I can think about is I just booked like $3,000 worth of travel that is non-refundable on the company dime to, uh, to a place we're not going. So the one thing that's interesting though, is, is, is when you look, you listen to Michigan state fans and I, like, there's a lot of people would rather not go to a new year six bowl. If Michigan can lose and, and bump them, you know, and, and even if Iowa then bumps Michigan state into the citrus bowl, and I understand that train of thinking, and I, and I think there's two reasons for that. One, I think that's just natural fan reaction. You don't want you don't want Michigan in the uh, playoff. You don't want them having a Big Ten championship. The things you've been able to say you've done that they haven't uh, is your program's time to ascend again. You don't want their program doing something like that. I also think there's a difference between the Fiesta Bowl and the Peach Bowl in terms of brand and like the Peach Bowl may be a New Year's Six Bowl. And, it, that, you know, they've made it one. That's fine. It's been around a long time. The Fiesta Bowl has gravitas, right? The Fiesta Bowl has been a national championship. It's been a game around forever. That's a big deal. You play like Notre Dame in a Fiesta Bowl, that's a big deal. I don't think the Peach Bowl and the Citrus Bowl, no matter who what you label it, the Peach Bowl on December 30th versus the Citrus Bowl versus an SEC team on January 1, in most people's eyes, is is no different. And, and, I, and I think people, if, if that meant, you know, if, if I don't think people would really care about that difference playing an SEC opponent in the Citrus versus Pitt in the Fiesta. I don't. I don't think there's a big difference to people. Well, I, I, it, what's interesting is the Fiesta Bowl is actually the older of the two games, or excuse me, the the Peach Bowl is the older yeah, true, of the two games true. by about three years. Um, I think the Peach was in '68 and the Fiesta in '71. But you know, kind of like the Cotton Bowl. When when the BCS came around, those two games were out of it, the Peach Bowl and the Cotton Bowl, but the Fiesta Bowl stayed in. It got in there. Um, so I think that's where the, the recognition comes from. I, either game is fine. 
quite honestly, if you're, if you're going to get it, because it's got that tag to it. It's a CFP New Year's Six Bowl game, which I think is important because that puts you one step outside of the national championship. And from a perception standpoint, to sell to recruits, say you come to school X and we just made a CFP bowl game, a New Year's Six bowl game. Our next stop is the final four or whatever it will be in the future. So uh, I think that's, you know, from a, from a recruiting and branding standpoint, it, it's, it's big to get one of those games. And it's the scenarios of the other games that I think, um, because, you know, the, the three tier one bowl games are the Citrus Bowl, the Outback Bowl, and the Las Vegas Bowl, I believe. And, you know, how that pecking order ends up, because, um, as I said, I think, you know, you're best off being inside that CFP rankings, CFP rankings uh, for Michigan State, because now you'll be assigned the bowl. But I, when you get to those other three games, I don't know how, how do you how do you think the Big Ten would progress, Graham? I mean, because you know, let's say chaos happens. Let's say Iowa beats Michigan. It's Iowa to the Rose Bowl. Michigan and Ohio State probably would get the Fiesta and the and the Peach Bowl. And then who would be the three behind that with with the Citrus Outback and and uh, Vegas Bowl because because yeah, be what Wisconsin and Penn State would be there and you know these are now you go from having the the CFP picking to the bowls picking. I think Michigan State being ten and two, like Penn State seven and five, and I think the Big Ten sort of has a um, a policy that's not written in stone, but if you're a certain amount of games ahead, you're, you're, I think Michigan State would go over Penn State for that reason. I think. Uh, Wisconsin has also lost a, a fair bit of games at this point and is, is coming off a loss and is not really a, the, the thing that helps MSU is one, I think people know their fans will, will travel and they're ready to go. Number two, they've got kind of when they're healthy an exciting team. They may not play a lot of defense all the time, but they play some great offense at times and they've got players that are planning to play in games, right? So, like, you're looking at, um, you know, uh, you know, a Heisman Trophy finalist perhaps and and a couple receivers, one who probably will be back, and Jalen Naylor, who their best are a pretty, you know, pretty exciting group of people. So I, I, I don't see them going further down than the Citrus Bowl. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. There's, I mean, you know, it would have to take, not that it, again, not that it would happen, but because of those big brand names with Wisconsin and Penn State, although right now Michigan State's probably a bigger or as big of a brand name as those two. I mean, the, it, it's, a, it's as remote a chance as possible that they would end up in Vegas, I would imagine. I, I think it's – and plus they haven't been to Florida in quite some time. Um, I think I looked it up yesterday. Um, but I, I, either – you know, all those teams I think are all within the window to play in either of the bowl games, um, be it Penn State, Michigan State – and Wisconsin. So I don't think that's, that. you know, because sometimes a team will play in a bowl game, uh, you know, two years earlier and be excluded from that pool. Uh, I don't think that, I think they're, I think Penn State maybe in like 2011 with one of the bowl games, I think it was the out, either the Outback or the Citrus, I can't remember. So, so I don't think that's a, a factor here, but I do think that Michigan State hasn't been to, to Orlando or to Florida since what, 2012? Um, 20 not the end of the 2011 season uh that the that year they won the Outback Bowl 
that which was Mark Antonio's first bowl win. So that's that's a ten year gap between going to Florida, where they've got a huge alumni base and travel really well too. So I I, I think those you know if it's not going to be CFP. I'd, I'd put it at a 99.5% chance it'll be one of those two games as well. I think it's interesting that, uh, that there was talk that if Notre Dame you know, didn't fill their head coaching vacancy this week and they somehow sneak into the play, would be in position to make the playoff, that it might hurt them a little bit. Well, obviously, you know, Michigan State doesn't have that issue with uh, you know, seeing they might be without a, seeing that Spartans could potentially be without a coach with Mel Tucker getting, of course, getting the huge contract extension, making it official at 10 p.m. Uh, on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Always, uh, always a great time to do that. Uh, and I just think that uh, that that certainly helps, and it helps Michigan State avoid the circus that has been the past few days. You know, with the LSU and Oklahoma, Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly, and all that stuff. Kind of, they're staying out of the hullabaloo of all that. Yeah, and who knows, by the end of the month, uh, Mel Tucker's deal might end up being, you know, tenth in the country. The thing about the Tucker timing is, you know, given what, you know, it would have been interesting if he was not under lock and key, so to speak, if, if when all this sort of happened and, you know, what LSU would have been willing to do. Because it looks like, despite early reports, what Brian Kelly got at LSU is the same as what Tucker got. And, um, which is interesting. I mean, you know, Mel Tucker's, even though I think you're right, at, at a certain point, um, somebody described it to me as being similar to the, the Matthew Stafford contract. Like it doesn't take long before it's, it's nowhere near the highest paid deal. And at a certain point it becomes a pretty good deal. If, if these contracts keep, keep going the way they are, especially a good deal because Michigan state's only, uh, paying, you know, uh, like 5.9 of that. Now the length of the deal MSU is on the hook for quite a bit. And, and, um, Mel Tucker's got a pretty sweet deal going, but, it, you know, the, the fact that donors are paying, uh, you know, more than a third of it, I think, uh, softens it a little bit. I think it's interesting that the buyout was still, quote unquote, only $2.5 million. I mean, it's good in terms of we need to avoid having schools get put ridiculous buyout, you know, offers in these contracts. But at the same time, I'm surprised how low it is. But it's not. It's it's two point five through through next through Jan, this coming January. Then it drops to two million, then a million and a half the following year, and then it'll be a million over the lifetime of the deal after that. So I mean, the thought is all the money being guaranteed up front in the contract for Tucker. If you're going to want to get Mel Tucker, you're going to have to give him whatever's remaining of that $95 million. Is that a good deal for Michigan State? I don't know. I mean, if you've got donors who are willing to step up and and fund things, it it it's it makes one thing. But, you know, you don't have any return on investment. Um, you know, if Mel Tucker were to take an NFL job or if he would take, you know, uh, you know let's just say he, he would replace Nick Saban at Alabama. You know, I mean, those uh, – you know, those scenarios, though, um, you know, the money would still be there for them to pay the next coach, which I think is 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 important that. But, you know, they're also sending a message that, you know, we're giving market value. Um, so it, whoever they they try and get whenever uh, Mel Tucker is done uh, at Michigan State, because it's inevitable coach isn't going to survive the lifetime of a program, look at Mark D'Antonio. But whenever that happens, um, or whenever they have to rework the deal again, uh, they'll have some, I, I think, they'll have some some candidates that'll be out there and see that Michigan State is willing to pony up. Well, before we move on to basketball, let's uh, 
cover one more football topic here, and that is the Big Ten Awards, which were given out earlier this week. Mel Tucker won the Big Ten Coach of the Year. Kenneth Walker was the Big Ten Running Back of the Year. I don't think both of those were that big of surprises. Chris, your reaction to to those Spartans winning those awards? I think there's a there's a good there was a good case for Jim Harbaugh, um, particularly in that last week with the win over Ohio State, but. I think from the expectation and talent standpoint, plus what they did in the off season, I think Mel Tucker was, you know, from after the Michigan game on, really pretty much coasting towards that that Big Ten Coach of the Year award because everybody had low expectations. We, Graham and I have talked about it, and Phil, you, we talked about it on the podcast. We had no expectations because we had no idea what we were going to see. Um, and obviously it worked out into a 10 win season and, and, and a big part of that was what he did in the portal and getting Kenneth Walker. And I think you can't say one without the other. I mean, Mel Tucker probably doesn't win the coach of the year without Kenneth Walker and Kenneth Walker probably doesn't potentially get to, to New York as a, as a Heisman finalist and win the, that running back of the year award without leaving Wake Forest. I thought the the C.J. Stroud over Walker deal for the you know player of the year or whatever in the Big Ten offensive player of the year was sort of a interesting and cliche pick. Like we always pick the quarterback easily, and I'm not saying Stroud's undeserving, and he still had a big day statistically against Michigan. But the first time he faced pressure this year, his team lost. Really, right? The first time he, people really got to him in the backfield, and and he was running a really well-oiled machine with NFL wideouts, and I'm not saying he's undeserving, but Kenneth Walker elevated an entire program. And um, I, I think that I know when those two teams were head-to-head, Walker was a little banged up. Things obviously went horribly for Michigan State. But Walker carried them to that that win over Michigan. He was the difference in that game. And I, I just think that if you're going to look at who was truly – I mean. Who, if you put Peyton, let me put it this way: If you put Peyton Thorn on Ohio State, no. How much does their season fall off? A bit. If you mm-hmm. put, and here's a way of looking at it: I'm not making the argument for Kenneth Walker. I'm saying, but if you put Travion Henderson on Michigan State instead, where does their season go? I mean, those are fair, fair, you know, items. But the reality is that Ohio State had one of the top two offenses in the country. Yeah. You know, I mean, the quarterback's always going to win that battle. Because he's involved in all facets of it, from throwing the ball to handing it off to running it and making the calls, making the checks. So, you know, the the running back gets the ball, see get ball, see hole, run. I mean, it's it, that's that's oversimplification of it, obviously, because of the, I mean, what Kenneth Walker has done in terms of his shiftiness, his vision, and all of that. Um, who, if you would ask me, who is the better? football player uh, of those uh, out of their performances, I would say Kenneth Walker. But when you tell me offensive player of the year, there's a lot more to it, I think, in in voters' minds than just simply who put up the best numbers. I I think that that's part of it. I mean, you could make a good case for either one of them. And they both, you know, that's that's the apples to oranges comparison of putting running backs and and receivers in in those. Because, I mean, to do, you know, you can make the case here with, uh, you know, coming into the year, I can make the case for Stroud saying coming into the year, everyone thought Garrett Wilson and uh, uh, Olave were the best receivers in the country. 
Well, look at what Smith and Jigba did with with his new quarterback. So, I mean, you know, he elevated his game to the point where everyone's like, well, he's one of the best receivers in the country, too. So, you know, you're kind of in a a damned if you do, damned if you don't spot as a quarterback, because if you aren't doing that and using those weapons, then, you know, people are on you. But if you do, then, well, is it you or is it the receivers? So. But I get, I get it. I, I get the argument on both sides of it. Um, you sure. know, I, I, don't, I don't have a huge, I don't have a problem with it. I just think that there's a case to be made. Yes, there's a case. There's a case both ways to be made. I would have made it Walker's way, but I don't think it's one of those things that, that that's that's angering over. I mean, this is another guy who's going to be on the Heisman stage, probably. Right? These aren't. This isn't some guy who's you know who's you know undeserving. Yeah, yeah and, and you know what? That's that's kind. of. You know that the Maxwell Award that that Walker is up for is exactly one of those kind of. He's the best college f- football player. You know, it doesn't have the caveats of some of the other things. And you know, if you if you put me him and Stroud in that competition, I would take Kenneth Walker. I think Kenneth Walker is a better football player. I think another point you can make in Walker's favor is that it really did take Stroud a couple of games to like really, really, really get going this season, whereas Walker was one of the best running backs in the nation from, from jump street. So, and, but as Graham and Chris point out, you know, that the head to head game really probably ultimately swung things in, in Stroud's favor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's also got two years in three years in college on Stroud as well. All right. Well, let's move on to basketball where on Wednesday night, the Spartans took on Louisville in the ACC big 10 challenge. And the Spartans came away with a, a pretty impressive victory, especially, you know, when it comes to defensively. I believe they held the Louisville's leading score to zero points, and they moved up to number one in the Kempom rankings in defensive efficiency. So it seems like things are clicking offensively for the Spartans now. The turnovers still, still problem. Nineteen last night, and it feels like every time I'm looking at a Michigan State box score, they're in the the high teens and twenties and whatnot. But uh, you know, maybe we'll come back to that later. But again, Spartans move up another big win, and then it really seems like they're at least on one half of the court, kind of finding their tune, Chris. Yeah, I think so. I, I, you know, it's. And it's still, I think, going to be up and down with the turnovers, partly with the the adjustment to new point guards, partly with the wings just not, you know, I mean, they, they think there were about five really, you know, stepping on the sideline or, you know, catching the ball and, and walking, you know, while going to the basket, taking an extra half step. And there, there were a bunch of, of turnovers that weren't necessarily – I mean, it, it, that's the other problem. That's the other thing is those turnovers aren't a lot of them aren't forced. They're they're self created turnovers. That's that's a matter of focus that that's going to come uh, together at some point. But the, I thought there were you know we, we talked about this. There were there were spurts last night on on Wednesday against Louisville where they played where they turned the ball over a lot, and then there were stretches and clusters where they played some of the best basketball they played all year. They were moving the ball. They were running in transition. Hogard was getting out and finishing in, in traffic or getting deep into the lane and kicking it out. And Walker was Walker, I think is really, he had finished with a 10 with those 10 uh, assists, which was a career high for him. Um, I and Graham, you might speak to this too. I think that, part of what we're seeing now is Walker understanding the guys around him and delivering the balls in better scoring positions, which can only come with that game experience. I, I just think that the whole schedule they played to this point has been ideal, right? I, I, I mean, I think the 
I don't remember a, a season where it's been more ideal in terms of not, there have been years where they've overtaxed themselves. There have been years where, uh, but, but this is a year where the, the games have all had, I think, really good purposes and timing for what they needed to face and what they needed to see. And Louisville was an extension of that because you went through a week in the, in the Bahamas last week where, um, you know, they, they faced sort of a crescendo of teams a little bit. You faced a very attentive Loyola team that isn't quite as long and athletic as, as UConn. And UConn had, you know, a great big and all that. But then Baylor was a different beast a little bit. And then, so you kind of have an understanding where you are. And then you face a team that mucks it up, that defensively is very good, that has some limitations. And, and so you've got a chance to win a game, to feel good about yourself, to get some confidence and and learn more about yourself. But also a realistic chance to win. They should beat Louisville, the Louisville team we saw last night, you know, uh, uh, quite often. And I think, you know, the, the point guard position is is – one of those, the more you watch, the more you see how much that's really going to, like it does many seasons, determine their year. And and uh, what, I think Walker to me, like I know Hogard played well in the second half, but I think Walker is the key. I just think he is, there's there's a separation there because he just sees the floor differently than, than Hogard does. And, and I think that, um, yeah, I thought last night for him, yeah, there were some, you know, you asked him about the the steals and everything last night when we were at the, the press conference afterwards, and you know he's got a real knack for some certain things for playmaking in certain settings. Yeah. He's got a knack when things break down. Like Hogard, obviously, the two faults of Hogard is one, he drives the ball in too far sometimes and plows into people and doesn't see what's happening around him. And the other thing is if if what's scripted doesn't happen, he's not as good as as Walker is. Walker just feels it, and and I think we started to see that last night. I think that. You know, some of that, um, you know, is going to eventually the the particularly Hogard going kind of bull in a china shop into the post when he's driving like that. That that'll end up on scouting reports, and you'll start to see more charges. So he's going to have to show a little bit in the pull up game and and kind of. I, I did like what he would he did in terms of getting into the deep into the post and kicking the ball out. Um, and I think that that was a, a, a critical reason that they had, I think 10, three pointers. They, they shot the ball lights out all night from the three, uh, which, which was big. Um, you know, I think the other part of this is that we kind of, we kind of got to touch on what's going on with Joey Hauser because, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a critical component right now. Uh, as, as much as the, the turnovers have been an issue, um, you know, across the board, you know, not getting the production from Joey Hauser on the on the scoring side and on the defensive side is is painful to watch because you know we saw what this kid was a year ago uh, in those first six non-conference games and lived up to the billing and then after Christmas it was just a drop off and and Tom Izzo was pretty frank about the the heat that that Hauser took from people and has been taking from people. Uh, and, and as being part of it, and but he also well, he, said he, that they need more from yeah, him. Yeah, he took from he took some heat from 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 Izzo yesterday. Um, yeah, and during the game, and and you know he's not playing well. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, if you look well, at the plus, did you see the whole sequence with that? Uh, it, yeah, he he came out. Izzo pulled him after yeah. I think it was after a turnover, um, and Izzo tried to talk to him, and Hauser blew right by him. Yeah, and wasn't listening, and Izzo grabbed him, followed him down the bench, and 
you know, sat there, gave him a, a speech, walked away, came back, sat next to him. And I mean, you know, so and I think it was it's important to mention that, that Izzo said that he really cares about Joey Hauser. And, you know, I think that's painfully abundant. I mean, he's, he's given him significant minutes and, and put him back in the starting rotation again after sitting the three games in the Bahamas. Um, so he, he has high expectations for the kid, um, you know, and that's, you know, but if you're, if you're a lie, I think he was a minus nine on the defensive side and continues to get blown by on that side, which we saw last year, he, he struggled defensively mightily. That's not his strength. Shooting is his strength. And that's not a strength at all either right now. I mean, right, he came back not- into the game after that, that little tete-a-tete with his and just started chucking from, you know, it, he'd catch the ball and he was you know, 35, 40 feet away and just throwing it up. And that's, you know, I don't know if that's the right idea either, but, you know, there's got to be some, some, I don't know. He, he's got to, he's got to find some stability there. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, Malik Hall will get his minutes and Pierre Brooks might get his minutes. And, you know, maybe you yeah. see more of the two guard lineup with, with Walker and Hogard and you push Christie to the three and Brown to the four. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, but you know, the, they need him. They need gave, they, Joey Hauser to be a productive player. It doesn't mean he has to be averaging a double double. He has to be able to produce. He's got to hit open shots. Yeah, and you know the the thing is because because otherwise, I mean that's his that's his skill that 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 makes him. I mean he was not. He's never been a great defensive player. He wasn't at Marquette. He was. You know he's not. That's not going to be his thing. And the thing is, if you look at you know he's minus minus nine last night in a game that they win by nine. And Malik yeah. Hall is 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 plus eighteen, and that's your counterpart. And, and and clearly finding a rhythm as a consistent guy. I mean, Hall is the answer is is well, you play Hall thirty minutes, and 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 just use Hauser less in those you know roles where he's also playing a little center or or moving Hall to the three. And and you know, here's 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 the tough news for Joey Hauser. And, and I get that there there if you go on Twitter, and I hope he doesn't. There are people that are absolutely cruel. This is a this is a college kid who's absolutely trying his best, and he's in a in a, in a bad way right now. But here's here's kind of the bad news from him from a playing perspective. One, the guy who was your original uh, platoon mate and no longer is are you really is is having a breakout stretch here, and and, and Malik Hall. The other thing that's happening is Tom Izzo is on record saying that Malik Hall is better at the four. Right. The other. So the, the idea of playing them at the three, four together is a little less enticing. Mm-hmm. You know, last night, Izzo talked about Max Christie and Joey Hauser together being sort of his best shooters in practice. And yet Max Christie is not letting what happens on the offensive end mess with his defense. He was great defensively, held Noah Locke to zero points last night for, for Louisville and, and is playing it just within himself and is not not. And, and, and Hauser is getting better looks and not hitting him and doesn't give you the, the things that, that, that Christie does. And then you get the addition of you bring up a guy like Pierre Brooks who comes in. And those were real rotation minutes last night. Like those yeah, were because he played twice in the first half. And then you know you're in the rotation because he's always constantly done this with young guys over the years. He, a guy gets two times in the first half and then doesn't play in the second. You're not really in the rotation until you play in the second in a competitive game. Well, he did. He got the, and he's had a guy like this before that gets the two times in the first half and the one in the second. And that's the spot that, that Pierre Brooks has moved into. 
And when you start to look at those minutes, some of them I think were Mati Sissoko's spot minutes uh, last night. But when you start to look at those minutes, they're going to be Joey Hauser's minutes. Eventually, you have to produce. And it, it, it's a brutal spot to be in because he's he's not getting support from the crowd. There was actually booze last night when he turned the ball over at one point. He's not getting – and he feels it. He knows it. Um, but ultimately, this is – Big Ten college basketball, and you have to play at a certain level. It, it's, you know, it goes. I remember asking Tom Izzo about um, Keon Coleman and Malik Carr at the media day, and Izzo didn't blow off the idea of them joining the team, but he, it was, you know, said we'll see. And then he said about them ever having a role. You know, it's competitive. It's competitive at this level. The idea that they could walk in and get for Joey Hauser, it's competitive, and eventually, no matter how much. Izzo likes you, and no matter how much people feel bad, or in some cases people don't feel bad, you, you have to produce at a level that's that earns the playing time. And right now, I don't, I don't think he is, frankly. Yeah, that, I mean that's, uh, uh, you know, with with Coleman and Carr, I mean, there's a reason that there aren't many Charlie Wards out there, right? I mean, that's the, there's you, you need to be a supreme high level elite yeah. athlete. I mean, it's you know even even the the occasional Matt Trannon or you know even Andre Risen when he played. I mean, the, those guys were freak athletes, um, but they also weren't starters. They were role players in in, in their secondary sport. Um, you know when they did play, uh, but but you're right. I do think. I mean, because. Because if Brooks starts getting more minutes, then that means that the, those minutes are going to be basically Malik Hall's at the three, and Hall's minutes in the three will go to the four, and, and take over more of, of Hauser. And then how, how you know Hauser's a shooter, so how do you how do you as a shooter adjust your mindset to being instead of finding a rhythm, being a, a plug and play guy off the bench? I mean, it's just. It's 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 hard for a kid that that has been, you know, been able to his for the, the entirety of his life find a rhythm with his shot, you know, shooting 20, 15, 18, you know, 10, 15, 20 shots a game. I mean, that's not the role that he's going to be in right now. So how do you adjust to that? And that's I think that's compounding with the pressure of the the external side with the fans and with everybody else. It's 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 the worst thing, you know. Chris Hall or Chris Hall, Chris Hill, yeah. You know, late in his career, struggled and lost some confidence. It, it it's one of the perils of being of having your sort of Division One worth being as a shooter, is that it, if you lose confidence, what you do that got you to that level, especially well, it, it, it gets taken away. Like if your if your strength is defense, you know you can just lock in and do your thing. If you're, I mean, like if, one of the things everybody, you know, Jaden Akins right now has become a fan favorite, right? And and that was, and there are a lot of reasons for that. When he's in the air, it, he is gliding. It is a beautiful thing. It is like the antithesis of you and me jumping, Chris, or Phil. Um, it, but one of the what's things. That? What's that? What's what's that? What's jumping? I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> it's when you put a single sheet of paper and you get over it on the ground. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, he, so he's a beautiful player to watch. And he and he's a you know he's a defender he's a rebounder and he plays all the roles that you like. The other thing that helps him be beloved, right, is he's not playing point guard, which people thought he would come into play. So he's not part of their turnover problem. If he was a true freshman playing twenty minutes a game at point guard and turning the ball over three times a game, and that was still this major issue, 
people would like him, but it wouldn't be this sort of, you know, I think there's a kind of a love affair with him a little bit and, and, and understandably so. And so I think sometimes it's what your role is, you know, when Kenny Goins was in that role, people liked him when he was the rebound hustle guy off the bench. And then he became the guy at center. People scored over and people hated him. Joey Hauser is in a position now where what he does and his value is plain to see because largely it's, he's getting a lot of open looks and he's missing. It, it, it's the Rocket Watts freshman year versus Rocket Watts sophomore year argument. Yeah, yeah. You can, you'll, you'll be beloved if you're playing on the wing and, and you've got a point guard who's who's holding down the fort. And, you know, all you got to do is hit a few shots here or there or and play some defense. But when more more responsibility falls on you to score, to – attack to create for others and you aren't doing it then there's a turn and i think that's that's you know that's certainly um you know that's that's something that hauser i mean since i mean it didn't help him that his coach put those expectations on him when he transferred by saying that he's the piece to a national title no, no, Izzo, Izzo, Izzo hurt, Izzo, Izzo hurt him with the hyperbole going in. But, yeah. but you know, people, but I think people misinterpreted that um, as as him being, a, you know, a superstar who can lead you a national title versus being a piece within the construct of the guys that they had with Tillman and Winston and and you know the other players that year. That I, you know. He, he maybe he very well may have been a piece to that na- a, a potential national championship that year um, with the guys that were around him, but he wouldn't have had the expectations of of being a twenty point a game guy, you so, know, or a ten point a game guy, you but, know, which is what now you are, you know, when you're that far on and you you know you don't have a a go to guy, which is always talked about quite a bit. Um, you know, this that that you were expected to maybe grow into that role, and it's not there now. So how do you? I mean, you got to readjust your role and expectations, but those expectations are just going are you know from Izzo two years ago linger over him, even though it had nothing to do. He's not is he any different of a player in those two years? No, but it was the pieces that were around him at that point. Right, but if, I think if we went back and looked at the audio or the quotes from Izzo and that like opening media day or whenever it was about there was there was a year about Hauser that it was because I understand that point that I do think if he came in the year that he was if he had been eligible to play and he doesn't think about it because he never thought he was going to be eligible but he'd been eligible to play with Cassius Winston feeding him the ball and Xavier Tillman protecting him defensively that he would have had a really good year I, I totally agree with that and he might have been a piece to a national championship caliber team that would have been taken away by the pandemic. And he could, anyway. he could have averaged, you know, six to eight points a game, which may have been his ceiling anyways. And uh, he it would have been, been a different six to eight points a game when you have Winston and Tillman than it is when you've got the current construct with no star. You know, he, might have, he might have done better than that. I think, but I think if yeah. you look back at those quotes from Izzo, it was more than that. It was very much, um, it was very much, the, I, I believe this guy passes you know, like magic, so to speak. You know what yes, I mean? It was a lot yes, of stuff. that. That part was a little bit of hyperbole. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was that was very Sparky Anderson, Barbara Barbaro Garbay is the next Roberto Clemente kind of talk. Yeah, very timely reference there, Chris. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I will say that I, Hauser scored the first basket of, of the game, I believe, last night, and uh, I thought, well, maybe this is the game. He kind of turns things around, and that obviously that uh, 
did not happen. But maybe maybe another day for him. You know how he did it? He went to the basket. He went to the basket yeah. and scored. And that's the th- and I think it's got to be the same thing that they've been trying with 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 Max Christie. You know, it, and the problem though is Max Christie has better athleticism. You know, get to the get to the rim, get fouled, get to the free throw line, build your rhythm that way. Um, I don't know if I don't know if Hauser's going to be able to do that because, you know, he may be able to do that in a game like Toledo uh, on Saturday. And but once you start getting into Big Ten play and and the guys that are checking you are a little quicker than you and 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 you're not able to turn the corner and draw contact, uh, uh, you know, that's that's going to be difficult. But if he's able to do that, I think that's big. I mean, there were times when he was posting up hard in front of us trying to get the ball. So again, it's not like the, the kids in loaf mode. I think that he's more in lost mode that when things aren't going right, he doesn't know exactly what to do because he's never experienced this sort of uh, of adversity as a player in his he life. Needs so. the, he needs to see the ball go in. Like, he you does. know, there's sometimes where you go, well, it's just Toledo and matchups matter. And, and there's no question, like, there, there, there are guys who can star against Toledo and, and, and that doesn't mean squat in the Big Ten. Um, but... I mean, Toledo's a good program, but you know what I mean, right. the relative to athlete length and all that. But Hauser's getting good looks, and he's getting good looks because of the way the offense works, because of the way he plays off of Tyson Walker. Like, those looks are going to always be there for him. And, and and also, at this point, I don't care if he's up against the three of us with two ghosties as the fourth and fifth defender. He needs to see the ball go in the rim, and he needs to see it happen in in front of people. And if it happens at Breslin – where people can see him hit shots and, and, and he starts, because to me at this point, it's, it's mostly about him feeling okay about himself as a shot. And, and, and then from there you work about the levels of competition. But at this point that that's, um, that's the thing that's going to happen. You, you bring up the, the crowd factor. And I, I think that's important because I do think it is important for him to hear that because remember he, he hasn't heard that. He, you know, it, what's interesting is I was talking to Marcus Bingham last night and, and asked him about that alley-oop that, that he had in transition from Walker, um, where it just kind of seemed like he hung in the air forever. And Breslin just went nuts when he threw it down. Um, he said that's the first time in his career that he felt that energy and that loudness for something that he did. He's, so, he's, he's like, he's like, usually if I, I've been on the bench for, for that that because that's that's what that last year has done you know Bingham played a lot of minutes last year he played a lot of important roles last year but he didn't do it in front of fans so that there is a confidence and you could see it in in the joy in his face of of talking about it and recounting it and 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 hearing that uh you're right I think Hauser needs to hear that too I mean because ultimately that's you know there's the boos aren't what you want to hear as a player, particularly your home crowd. You want to hear that cheer and that roar because that's what restores confidence. Well, if you if you think it doesn't matter, so uh, I just got a tweet from a reader who said he was at the game last night and doesn't believe he's ever heard as many groans and negative comments from Spartan fans about one of their own players. And and this is where it matters because because Hauser will begin to anticipate it. He'll begin to hear this. I did a column several years ago about. Uh, this was the end of the late in the Travis Trice era. This was the, I think the 14, 15 team that made the final four, but was a bubble team for part of that year. And their home road free throw percentage of, of certain players was astounding. Yes. I, think, I think Travis Trice was like 86% on the road and 60% at home from the free throw line, which, which all had everything to do with because they had started missing. It became an issue. You could hear the, 
the air sucked out of the room when the ball yeah. was about to go up and the groans when they missed and it became a thing in their heads. The, the free throws in that season in the 2014-15 season were the turnovers this season. Yeah. It was a perpetual and constant story that you couldn't shake until postseason. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean I think I think fans need to be wary of that. Now look, I fans pay their tickets, they they have the right to, to go and 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 but I, I would I would say if you care about the results of the team and you care about the kids on the team, the just don't say anything if you can't say something nice rule would be the best way to tackle the, the Joey Hauser situation and uh, give the kid time to figure it out and remember he's a human, remember he has a mother. I mean, that, that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I try to, with everything I always write, I try to remind myself, this person has a mom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that is, you, you got to humanize them. Like how, you know, and, and, and they got a family. Fans don't care. Fans, fans nowadays don't care. Some do. Some do. Fans get caught up in things. I think they do care ultimately. I think but there's I an age. I think there's an age gap in that. I think yeah. I really do. I think younger fans and, and maybe, you know, in hindsight, in, in, in my fandom over the years, when I was a kid, there's probably some of that. As well, like you, you appreciate and understand that a little bit when you get older, and maybe, you know, either have kids or your friends have kids, and you see them going through it, versus when you're of that age or not too far removed from that age, and you know your be all and end all is following these people and their athletic exploits. You talked about you know saying something nice, and I'll say something nice here about Malik Hall: fifteen points, five rebounds, two assists, six of eight shooting, three of three three pointers in twenty four minutes. Pretty, pretty, pretty good for him last night. Doesn't help yeah. Hauser. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, no, but he, you know, it's real important for Michigan State because he needs to. And, and you know, he had the sprained ankle against Baylor early in that game, and the the, but he didn't do a lot against UConn either. Uh, and you know, he needs to. And, and he talked about just something he struggles with figuring out the consistency and how to get his within the offense with because he's not a one on one type player guy, you know, and. But he is a guy that when this team is looking for consistent scoring and guys who can do things in spurts that change games, like last night, his quick uh, eight points in 90 seconds changed that game. It was it went from being a competitive game to a Michigan State comfortably in control for most of the second half from there on. And and they need him to be that sort of guy and and um, and to do it against good athletes and, uh, and, and have faith in himself to do it. And um, he's a third-year guy who's shown an array of skills, and it, it, it's time. It's, it's it's time for him to, to, to be that guy. I don't disagree at all. And it's, I mean, when you talk about those minutes at the four, he's the better defender as well. I mean, as I was talked about, his ability to guard multiple positions over the course of his time, and you know that ultimately is is there. You know, that's you know, there's no question who the better option defensively is between him and and Hauser. Uh, so that's, you know, the, the, I, I just wonder at some point, does Gabe Brown have to slide to the four for some of those minutes? Um, to, if, if, if you do end up replacing him, but, but Hall is such an integral part of this team right now. I'm curious to see how the starting position moves forward. Um, because, you know, the Hauser ended up playing, you know, 15, 16 minutes. Hall played 24 plus. Do you does a, does that does that number is there a slide rule on that? Does Hall's minutes go up and Hauser's go down? I don't know. What's interesting about this team is they're pretty good. 
they're winning a lot of games. They have you, you can see all this potential for them being a very good team and maybe being in the thick of everything. Maybe not against Purdue. Purdue looks like they might be at another level in the Big Ten. And yet, there's so much we're learning about them game by game, and so much that's that still has to be developed. I mean, if this team's going to, I mean, and that's one of the reasons they have a high ceiling, though, is guys like Malik Hall are finding themselves still. Guys like Max Christie are finding themselves still. At the point guard position, they're finding themselves still. So, I mean, they're, they're doing this. And part of it is their their defense has gotten pretty good. And they've got a pretty good defensive identity if you look at the numbers there. And, and that's um, that can carry you a ways. You, you want to know one of the, the quietest developments of, of that, that game against Louisville was how poorly Marcus Bingham started that game and how strong he finished. Because, you know, if we want to run the parallel with Hauser, um, you know, Bingham in the past could have very easily, after, you know, turning the ball over, taking ill-advised shots, getting lost. I mean, there were there were a number of things that he did maybe in the first three minutes that he played where he thought this is going to be one of those nights where Izzo's going to have a quick hook on him and, and sit him down. But he came back. He went strong to the basket. Um, he finished at the rim. He attacked the boards. Um, he responded to it. And he talked about the, the you know, hearing the coaching and hearing that hard – language sometimes that Izzo has, and you've got to understand what he's doing and trying to drive you to be better, you know, and I think that's, you know, that was a sign to me of, of a maturing Marcus Bingham, um, which, you know, all the other things that, that you saw in, in that Louisville game, that one was, was one that was a little hidden there. He finished what <clears throat> nine points and 12 boards, but he, he attacked the basket and he got to the free throw line four times. So those those are the things that they want from him. And uh, congrats to the Big Ten for winning the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Eight to six. I'm ready to get hurt again in March when I pick a number of Big Ten teams to make deep tournament runs only to see them lose in the first and second round. Oh, boy. <laughs> that's That's been an, a, a, cra- there was a crazy challenge. You know, Michigan got thumped yep. by North Carolina and – was it Syracuse, Indiana going to double overtime and Nebraska and who the heck Nebraska? That one was another one of those doozy overtime games that went crazy. So, I mean, whew, buckle up because, yep. you know, big <laughs> what about a week and a half from now, Big Ten season starts two weeks. Yep, exactly. All right, the Spartans will play uh, Saturday against Toledo. So we'll get to, we'll see what's next in the, uh, in the forward battle and we'll we'll see who plays who gets the minutes and whatnot but before we uh before we sign off this week i want to get your guys's predictions for what the final four will be in the college football playoff graham well it's a great question because it, it's just hard to know what alabama georgia will look like and if alabama loses are they out and how far do they like if alabama loses i'll have a field goal are they done you know i um i think cincinnati's got a tough game but i'll, I'll say cincinnati's gonna win and be in i think the the That'll help the fact that the Notre Dame coaching situation is being resolved, and it looks like Luke Fickle will be there. Um, you know, I think Michigan will win. I just I think it's a bad matchup for Iowa. I think Georgia is an absolute beast, and and so I think that next team is probably Oklahoma State if they beat Baylor. And so that's that's that would be my guess right now over Alabama. Depending on I just I think Georgia is going to put one up. This is like a this is a real demon. For Georgia, yeah. Alabama has been. I think they're going to really try to put one on Alabama. And I think Alabama, unfortunately for Alabama, is is not what they've been. I, so put, give me Oklahoma State as that 14. Graham, I am 100% with you on the Georgia-Alabama thing. I think 
I think Georgia puts it to them pretty handily, and uh, that will knock Alabama out of the playoff. And I have the exact same four teams. I think everybody holds serve. I think it'll be Georgia, Michigan, Cincinnati, Oklahoma State as your as your four, which I'm excited about because you kind of get some new blood in there if that's how it plays out instead of you know the the same old same old. So so that clearly means that Graham foresees a another Michigan State Alabama game in the Fiesta Bowl. Um, I think wouldn't it be it, Notre Dame. Oh. Yeah, uh, it probably would be Notre Dame. I, believe. I think Gamma will wind up in the sugar. I could be wrong on that. I was trying to read the SEC rules on that. Uh, and what yeah. I think Bama's more likely to go to the sugar, but I could be. You, you, this this wouldn't be a horrible year to face Bama, though, even though Michigan State's not a juggernaut either. I mean, you're not you're not gonna, likely to get run off the field, in other words. I'm going to go the other direction with this. I think that. It's going to be Georgia. I think it's going to be Michigan. I think they're going to win that game uh, against Iowa. I think it's going to be a slug, slug fest and a slog fest. Ooh, um, I don't. I th- I think the Wolverines route, route Iowa. I think it's going to be akin to the the 2015. That's just the style that Iowa wants to play. Sure. I mean, they want to. Both of these teams want to run the ball and grind it. It's going to be an old school Big Ten game where I, you know, I wouldn't put the over much more than 40, 45 in it. Um, I think Cincinnati's in there um, uh, at the three spot, and I think Notre Dame. Wow! I think I think you, you, Notre Dame jumps so close. I think State. Notre Dame makes the jump because of the one loss being against Cincinnati, and yeah. I think that that ultimately ends up helping them that that they get a little boost on that. So it'll be uh, it'll be very and the Big Twelve. The Big Twelve is in such disarray that you know I'm not sure that Oklahoma State will even win. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a really good point. That's a good point. And that's Notre Dame's Dame's path, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think Oklahoma State would get over Notre Dame just if if Oklahoma State wins, just because Oklahoma State's got a couple like top fifteen wins. I don't think Notre Dame has has any, if I recall, any maybe one or zero top twenty five wins. So gotta beat Baylor first. I'm saying. I'm saying if in that that scenario, if they beat Baylor, right? But they've already beaten Oklahoma. They've already beaten. It's a it's a so fun Texas final weekend though because right? yeah. there's a lot at stake and, and and just imagine if there you know if there's a 12 team playoff how cool this would be this weekend um, but yeah there's a, there's a lot there's a, a lot of there's a lot um, yeah I, I I'm I'm excited to see it and I, I like that like Oklahoma State making the playoff after Oklahoma says now nah, we're going to the Big 12 and then their coach says screw it I'm going to an easier league to to dominate with USC. Like this might be the ultimate kiss off. Like, go ahead, you're going to be fighting for relevancy in the SEC. We'll stay here in the Big Twelve and make the playoff. I, yeah. I, I would part of me would enjoy that. I mean, that's also probably probably partially why Lincoln Riley said peace out, and I'm going to USC where I can, yeah. where I can in a couple of years, if not year one, just win the Pac-12 every single year and be in the playoff. Of course, the, the little secret there is that the the, the wins and, and games against the name programs like Oklahoma and Texas with those committees still carry more weight than probably actually deserve. It's true. And if you don't have those marquee wins, you run yourself the, the Cincinnati situation. I mean, if Cincinnati doesn't have that Notre Dame win, where are they at? Yeah. Even undefeated. And, and it's, yeah, and Gary Bart is not the first. Um, logic challenged person to run this committee so you, you, you it's, it'll be interesting to see what uh what uh what what transpires yeah. this, uh, this what also hurt cincinnati it turned out indiana was just a complete <laughs> turned into a, a complete dumpster fire 
no, but I'm all about intent and scheduling. Yeah. And like to me, and that's one of the reasons I, you got to get the 12 too, because like to me, these games get scheduled a bit out in advance. And if you're trying to play high majors on the road and they wind up having a horrible year, um, like I would love, I would love scheduling conversations to be public. I would love to know if Cincinnati called Alabama to say, Hey, would you be up for playing us? And if Alabama said, no, I'd like that to be a factor. I think intent and scheduling absolutely should matter. I'm with you, Graham. All right. Any final thoughts before we sign off for this week? No prediction, I guess. Huh? No game. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean do, you guys, do you want to predict the Toledo? <clears throat> I mean, we predicted the playoff. Uh, do you want to predict a Toledo game? Never. I'm never a fan of basketball predictions, even though no. I have basketball games. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to do. Plus, I don't know. I mean, I know uh, I know a little bit about Toledo's program because, you know, I'm, I'm that guy. But, um, are. But, uh, and did I know you ever Western Michigan before. Am I, did I, <laughs> am I is that correct? And I know Justin Ingram from Lansing is, is, uh, is on that Toledo staff. That is true. Uh, but I, I do not, um, I do not have a lot of intel. So it would be me just blindly throwing out a number. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I the, as we were doing this, the, uh, the Walter Camp found football foundation, uh, player of the year honors came out. And, uh, you know, the finalists are uh, Jordan Davis of Georgia, Kenny Pickett of Pitt, Bryce Young of Alabama, no C.J. Stroud, Michigan's Aiden Hutchinson, and Michigan State's Kenneth Walker. Mm, wow. Interesting. So, it was, again, the, the irony, of course, being that Kenneth Walker ran for 260-some yards at Northwestern and four touchdowns, and Walter Camp Foundation snubbed him in that. So... <laughs> Take that for what it's worth. We're, are we still? We're still mad about that. That was that, man. That feels like five lifetimes ago. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this edition of Spartan Speak, a production of the Lansing State Journal, Detroit Free Press, and the USA Today Network. If you enjoy this podcast and the work surrounding it, please consider subscribing. You can follow our coverage at lsj.com, freep.com, and on Twitter at Graham underscore Couch, at Chris Solari, at Phil underscore Friend, and the LSJ Green White. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.